This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that will reduce symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. For $75 off your first order, visit molecule.com and enter the promo code FOOL75. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, everybody. Hello. We're also joined by Sean Gates, because it's the mailbag episode. And so today, we're going to answer your questions about what to do right before you retire, timing the market, factoring pensions and Social Security into your asset allocation, and so much more. (laughs) So exciting. All that and more on this week's episode (laughs) of Motley Fool Answers. Hey, Sean, welcome back. Thanks. It's good to be back. Thanks for uh, coming in and helping us tackle this uh, mailbag. And you're going to be coming back soon as well to help us with a series that we're going to do with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool, uh, on different life events. So I'm excited about that. Yes, it'll be very exciting. I read all the comments about how your voices are so wonderful for podcasts, but they don't talk about how nice your faces are for podcasts. Oh, well, thank you very much. We do have faces for podcasts. (laughs) All right, let's head to the first question. It goes to Bro. Comes from Jeff. I am 65 years old and a little less than two years away from my planned retirement date. Congratulations. Over the past two years, I've been investing my sizable IRA into allocations close to those recommended in the RYR model portfolios for someone in retirement, just to be conservative. Oh, they're listening to your advice. I know, that's so in great. Your retirement. And I'm sorry. No, I'm just ah. As a full subscriber since the early 2000s, I'm pretty comfortable with buying and holding stocks for the long haul. I am not comfortable in the world of bonds, and have only bought into bonds via the bond allocation recommended in Rule Your Retirement. About two months ago, I sold all the bonds in the IRA to cash. I do get 1.9% on my cash in the IRA, so I'm not too anxious to get my money back into bonds. But when should I be thinking about putting all that cash back into bonds? And is it better to be in bond funds or in actual bonds? Well, Jeff, bonds, 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 bonds. Uh, So, Jeff, thanks for subscribing to Early Retirement. Of course, so keeping it, food on the broken family table. <laughs> right. So, the model portfolios for people in retirement is that classic split of sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds. Although, really, the forty percent is out of the stock market. So, it can be bonds, could be cash. In particular, particularly with what we call the income cushion, which is three to five years worth of portfolio-provided income that you're supposed to get from your portfolio, that's part of that 40%, and that really should be safe, and and I'm perfectly fine with that being in cash. Because, and we saw this last year, bonds do go down, particularly when interest rates go up. The Fed hiked rates four times last year, the prices of bonds dropped, but because of the interest, they were essentially flat for the year, so they did underperform cash. Um, Historically, Bonds outperform cash by about 2% a year. I'm cautiously optimistic that bonds will beat cash this upcoming year, because the Fed is not going to raise rates four times. But I'm just only cautiously optimistic about that, because there still be, could be a couple of rate hikes on the way. Plus, and we got a question about this, too, regarding something I had mentioned in a previous episode, and that is, when you look at the bond market, it is riskier, particularly the corporate bond market. Much more of the corporate bond market now is made up of debt that is just on the verge of falling into junk territory. Mm. So, the bottom line, I think, is A, I'm perfectly fine with you being in cash instead of bonds, certainly in the short term. 
Over the long term, I do expect bonds to outperform cash, but just by like 1% or 2%. And the riskier the makeup of your bonds, the more likely they actually will drop during the next recession. And we saw corporate bonds drop during the last Great Recession. So, basically, if you want to play it safe, I'm fine with cash. If you're going to go into bonds, pay attention to the quality of the bonds. And if you're going with a bond fund, you can look at that at Morningstar. Click on the portfolio tab, and it'll tell you what's in there. Um, and the other question was whether individual bonds are safer. They provide more security, but they take more work. But you can easily buy individual treasuries straight from Uncle Sam at treasurydirect.gov. All right, next question comes from Jim. I was discussing 401k plans with a friend recently, and he showed me his statement. Wow, these are close friends. <laughs> there are not many people in the world I would show my statement to. He is paying a 5.75 sales fee upfront before the ongoing costs of the various funds. On the surface, it would seem that the plan doesn't meet the fiduciary responsibility. He says he asked his CEO about the plan, and they won't change anything. The company doesn't provide any match, so I told him to stop contributing and use an IRA or brokerage account. Can you explain the responsibility of a plan administrator? Is there anything else that he can do? It's a great question and very inside baseball. And so, the responsibility rolls up to ERISA, which is the regulatory body that governs employer employer provided plans. And I think one thing that your friend can do as a first step is just make the CEO aware that he has a personal responsibility to provide fiduciary level advice to his employees. Uh, And you can do that in subtle ways. You could give him reports that kind of outline how, and this is what's referred to as an interested party. So there are the people who actually administer the plan, uh, TPA people, uh, record keepers, the actual plan administrator. They have a direct fiduciary responsibility to their employees, but they're also interested parties. And under the new fiduciary rule that's being bandied about, and then specifically under ERISA, these interested parties also share responsibility. And so, just making them aware that he could be personally liable for any lawsuits that came against him for high-fee 401ks might nudge him in a different direction. A harder step that you could take is you could initiate a class action lawsuit. There have been several over the last few years that have paid out massively, and they're not hard to prove. A 5.75% front load on a mutual fund will fall squarely in what they call, quote-unquote, excessive fee classification. Ameriprise recently paid out $27.5 million, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, multi-million dollar Lawsuits and also will normally be remunerative to the clients above and beyond. So, so it's you know base level punitive damages and then making clients whole for the fees that they paid over and above. It over sounds time. like he works at a small employer though. If he's able to walk into the CEO's office and chat, that is that class action lawsuit. It's not a Boeing sized company, right? Yeah, it might not be class action lawsuit. I just use those examples to say you could take legal action if you just get an independent lawyer on your own. They can also file uh, an excessive fees. Lawsuit. Now, you could be worried about, um, you know, ramifications of doing that in a small employer environment. Don't fault you for that. That's why I suggested the first step be just let him know what he is responsible for. <laughs> you got a nice business here. It'd be a shame if someone called a lawsuit for your excessive mutual fund fees. Exactly. But I think you're also in the right. And so, just you know, if if lawsuits were on the table, and you know, you're, there's a pro con decision there. But but these things are becoming more and more relevant. More and more lawsuits are coming up and being paid out. It's hard to justify these type of fees inside a 401k. 
The, the reason he's probably doing it, the CEO, and it could be he or she, is doing it to save the company money, right? Because yeah. it does cost company to offer 401k. And then if they go to a, a broker, financial advisor, and say, we want a 401k for our, for our company, and, and, and she or he will say, well, we'll charge you this and make it easy on the employees, or we won't charge you much and make the employees pay. That's what's going on here, probably. The thing is, over the last few years, there have been many more providers aimed at small businesses with much more reasonable fees. So I would also look out there and have, maybe have an alternative to offer and yeah. say, look, here's someone who's doing this pretty reasonably for small businesses. That's a great point. Yeah, I was I was going to say Betterment has a Betterment for Businesses uh, program that's a very low cost, and they specifically are trying to kind of check the boxes of the different regulations. I think it's uh, E38 or something like that, uh, the fiduciary rules. And so you can present those as alternatives to the CEOs who just might not know that there are cost-effective ways to implement 401k plans. Right. And I'll second Jim's advice to uh, his friend in saying that I would not I would first max out an IRA before I participate in a high-cost, no-match 401k. We did an episode less than a year ago on what to do if your 401k plan stinks. That's not the exact title, but look look it up. It's, it's a lot of bro talking about other options and what right. you should do. Yeah. All right, the next question comes from Robert, and it's for bro. Robert writes, I currently hold 92 stocks with the top 16 positions representing 68% of my total accounts value. I wish I could take credit for being a super stock picker, but the reality is that I've been able to follow the stock advisor and rule breaker recommendations, hold a lot more than I sell, invest routinely, and stay the course over time. Aw, I can't say thank you enough for the guidance over the years, as it has served me very well. Mm. Aw. Uh, so, so, after reading all that praise, uh, let's move into the question, shall we? Uh, I'm four years away from the minimum age to draw social, early Social Security, and my wife will be eligible to draw early Social Security in two years. We have a very reasonable mortgage that we could pay off if we liquidated our after-tax account investments, but may not want to for tax purposes. I have three questions. One. I have read several Guide to Retirement articles that suggest that you should have 10 times your current salary saved for retirement. Is that enough? Two, another guideline I've read is that you should draw only 4% annually from your accounts in retirement. Your thoughts on this? Three, should we pay off our current mortgage prior to retirement or keep it to maintain some kind of mortgage interest write-off during retirement? All right, number one. Are you ready to go back to number one? Yes, but before I do that, I'm going to point out something else. Okay, so Robert, you mentioned that you're four years from minimum age to Social Security, and your wife is two years. That sort of suggests that you might be planning to claim Social Security early. My first thing would be probably don't do that. We just the previous episode in our interview with Larry Swedrow, he talked about more and more. It's basically the recommendation is to delay it. So definitely look into that. It's for most people that's the right thing to do. Okay, so for the first question was the guide to retirement and that you should have ten times, 10 your, times salary your salary before you retire. That advice mostly comes from a very well-known Fidelity study. Um, and there are other studies that also generally support that one from DFA. Other studies recommend more. So if T. Rowe Price did a similar type of analysis, suggests that you should have 12 times your salary before you retire. But the thing is, these are rules of thumb. And there are lots of factors that would determine whether that's good for you or not. So one of them is how much you're making before you retired. Um, if you look at the 2018 recommendations from J.P. Morgan, they have this great J.P. Morgan Guide to Retirement. They would say 10 times is fine if you earn $75,000 a year, 
But if you are, have a household income of $150,000, you need 13 times your salary before you retire. The reason is because Social Security replaces less of your income the wealthier you are. So that's just one example of how there are lots of factors that determine this. So definitely go see a qualified fee-only planner to get that answer for you. The second question was whether the 4% rule uh, makes sense and our thoughts on it. I keep threatening to do a whole episode on this, and one of these days I will. But I will basically say, as a, as a back-of-the-envelope rule of thumb, it's OK. Um, but generally speaking, it's also something that really depends on a lot of situations, your age, your life expectancy, whether you're getting income from other sources. Um, so I would say it's fine if you're just sort of doing a mental like calculus of how generally how much you could have in your first year retirement, but I wouldn't rely on it exclusively. And then the third question was whether you should pay off your mortgage. You talk about the being able to write it off as a deduction. The truth is, I'm going to guess you're not actually going to be able to do that anymore because of the higher standard deduction from the new tax law. Very few people will be writing off, or at least much less, much fewer people will be able to write off their interest. Plus, it sounds like you've had your mortgage for a while, and as you own your mortgage, more and more of your payments are principal and not interest. So I wouldn't count on it for any sort of tax deduction. If you have a lot of cash sitting around, earning one, two percent, and you have a mortgage on which you owe three and a half, four percent, I say go ahead. You might want to do that. I feel less confident in terms of selling a bunch of stocks, paying the capital gains taxes. To do that to pay off your mortgage. So, um, again, as a safe bet, as an alternative to cash, I think it's fine. I think the only thing I would add this question is going to look similar to other questions that we answer insofar as you're in a sweet spot in that there's a time frame between when most people retire and most people start to recognize most of their retirement income. And it's usually between five and eight years, let's say. Uh, where you know you've officially retired, you're not claiming Social Security yet. You could delay to postpone that window. Maybe you have a pension that hasn't kicked in yet, etc. RMDs don't kick in until you're 70. So there's this window where you can recognize income strategically to manage your tax bracket into retirement. And I feel like this is the thing that I add value to folks the most as a financial planner. And it's something that people don't know to ask. And and I think you're missing it here because you even said you're going to claim Social Security potentially early. If you delay, you get a bigger Social Security benefit and could harvest income from other retirement assets, pre-tax assets, strategically now to bridge you. And it would probably lower your lifetime tax liability. So just these are things that you should be thinking about as you prepare to see a qualified financial planner. Our next question comes from Rob. I am 51 years old and about two years away from retirement. I am a single man currently with no dependents, and I have been investing about 30% of my income. I have $300,000 in my tax deferred thrift savings plan account, $400,000 in my Roth TSP, $150,000 in a Roth IRA, and $300,000 in my brokerage account. My TSP accounts are equally split among three index funds, CSI, and the brokerage account is split about 50-50 between index funds and a handful of individual stocks. I also expect my pension from the military will be approximately 4000 per month and that my mortgage will be paid off in the next few years. What would you recommend I do with these funds upon retirement to maintain a healthy lifestyle, not extravagant by any means, that will allow me to travel occasionally, volunteer my skills, and time for a cause, and still leave a healthy sum to charity, school, church, etc. when I die. How should I invest them? Should I com- combine the accounts? Am I on track for a healthy 30-plus-year 30 30 year retirement? 
Such a good question. You should also see a financial advisor. <laughs> <laughs> We're open at Motley Fool Wealth Management. A, a sister, sister company, company of the Motley Fool. Fool. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I think my first response would be, man, I want to see your statements. You're single? Tell me your statements, sir. <laughs> Sean, you are not single, so... Oh, damn it. But he's open-minded. Spoiler. <laughs> um, so this, this touches on a number of things that I run into all the time. And I would say... The big piece that you're, you're missing here that would help someone answer this well is how much do you want to spend in retirement? So you, you listed all of your assets. I don't know how much you're going to spend. If you want to spend $30,000 a year, you're probably fine. You can do whatever the hell you want. Um, most people that I run into, especially people who have been following The Fool for a, a while, are in better shape than your average bear. Better to the standpoint of they actually could have a very healthy lifestyle on their goals, because their goals are usually modest. And so, without knowing much more about your situation, I'd say you're probably fine, um, but we could certainly get more into the weeds. And I would say also, one of the things that I fear you've missed as well is your saving strategy seems a bit wonky. I'm presuming that you have a decent income, and you probably made the calculus that you wanted to save after tax to Roth money, because that's the most tax-efficient growth that you can get. But you also find yourself at a young age with a military pension of being able to retire well with that sort of pension. And you also get to dictate your income in retirement before you turn on Social Security and before before you turn on your RMDs. And so it might make more sense to save pre-tax rather than Roth now, claim the immediate tax deduction that that affords you, and then start harvesting income in between the years that you retire and turn on your various income sources. So this is, again, this is setting yourself up for the best success in retirement that people often forget to ask about. Yeah, so he asks about what to do with the accounts, too. So the TSPs, the Thrift Savings Plans, basically the 401k for federal employees. And all their funds have these letters. So he has CSI. C is basically common stock, the S&P 500. S is small cap, I is international. It is extremely low cost, very efficient plan. So for most people... Um, who are in the TSP, I don't see a reason to move out of that unless you want to be able to use some more of that money to buy individual stocks. Um, and this ad- addresses a lot of questions we receive about, I've left my employer, what should I do with my old 401k? And it comes down to, number one, do you even have a choice to leave it there? And sometimes you don't. They're going to kick you out eventually, and it's better you to take the initiative to move it. Um, number two, costs. We we talked about the uh, the previous person with the horrible plan. You would definitely want to move out of that if you can. And then number three is options. Again, in the TSP, you just have index funds, and you might be perfectly happy with that. But if you want to have other options, you would move it out of the plan. So I would definitely, for him, I would say it's probably fine to leave the money. But for other people who have often asked what to do with old 401ks, those are things to consider. Costs options and other choices that you might want. Uh, he also asked about a 30-year retirement, but he's planning to retire um, in his early 50s. Yeah. So he really should plan on a 40-year retirement. Absolutely. And I would say one other thing that we didn't touch on is the investment plan. And here again, it's such a unique perspective because if you're as in good a shape as I think you are, one of the benefits of financial planning that people don't appreciate, I think, is that if we run the projections specific to your situation, it's very likely that you could choose what you want your investment plan to look like. And what I mean by that is you could just stay in cash, just raw cash earning you 2% and probably meet your financial goals, but you might die with less money than you would want. Or you could be very aggressive and die with a lot more money, but you open yourself up to near-term risk and how you handle that. And so 
you could choose anywhere along that spectrum, but it's up to you and what you value. Do you want to die with a lot of money or do you want to have a more luxurious life now and maybe be able to sleep better at night? And so these are just conversations that are worth having for a lot of folks that don't know where to turn. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is the world's first molecular air purifier capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level and reduce symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule replaces 50 years of antiquated technology, going beyond the HEPA filter system to both capture and eliminate allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals. That includes pollutants 1,000 times smaller than what a HEPA filter can catch. In our office, um, Melissa recently came by and borrowed the molecule, and she had it one night, she said, and she woke up the next morning, and she turned to her husband, and she said, is this what normal people breathe like? (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I haven't been able to breathe in the morning in years. So she's like, she's sold. So not only is it effective in helping people like Melissa breathe through their noses again, it's easy to use and has a sleek design. For $75 off your first order, visit Molecule.com and enter the promo code Fool seventy five. That's M O L E K U L E dot com and promo code Fool seventy five. All right. Next question comes from Brett. I understand that ETFs are more tax efficient than mutual funds, so it makes sense to use them in retail brokerage accounts. But assuming a mutual fund and an ETF invest in the same index and have the same expense ratios in a tax-deferred account, it seems the mutual fund is the better choice because it's easier to invest in a varying amount of cash and can be more hands-off for long-term investing. Is there another reason to choose the ETF in a tax-deferred account other than real-time trading? I'll start with explaining what he means by the real-time trading. So, an ETF is a fund, that's the F, that trades like a stock. So, if you're thinking at two o'clock and the the market's open and you want to buy or sell a certain ETF, you pull up the quote, your broker, you place the order, and you're probably going to get very close to that price. Traditional mutual funds, they only trade and are only valued at the end of the day after the market is closed. So, if it's two o'clock and you're thinking of buying or selling an open-end mutual fund, you can pull up the quote and see what it was worth the day before, but you don't know the price you're going to get if you place that order. So, that is definitely a benefit of ETFs. He talked about ETFs being more tax efficient. That's generally true, but not always true. Uh, and you can find out the tax efficiency and compare a fund to an ETF at Vanguard. You just put the tickers in the site. You click on a tab that says taxes, and you'll find the, the basically they call it the tax efficiency ratio. But just as an example, one of the biggest ETFs, the Spider S and P 500, uh, the ticker is SPY. It's actually less tax efficient than the Vanguard 500 traditional mutual fund. So ETFs are not always the most tax efficient. Can you can you um, step back and define what makes something more or less tax efficient? Basically, what they do is is they what Morningstar does is it calculates how much you would have lost to taxes if you held the uh, the investment in a taxable account. So, in the difference between those two funds, it's small, but regardless, the Vanguard 500 mutual fund is more tax efficient. And one of the things that happens in mutual funds is mutual funds are a collection of dollars that then goes to buy a series of stocks. And so, you as an individual investor, when you buy into that mutual fund, 
you might be buying into stocks that have already appreciated in value because it's already been accounted for for all of the other investors that they have. And then they're going to distribute you a pro rata portion of the capital gains of that fund, of those shares, even though you didn't participate in the growth. And, and ETFs do a better job, not a perfect job, but a better job of being more liquid and attributing individual shares to the price that you enter in because they're, they trade intraday. Right. So it just varies from fund and ETF. So you just want to look specifically at your funds if you're buying them in a retail account. But as Brett is pointing out, he's in a tax-deferred account, so he doesn't care. He does also point out another benefit of mutual funds, in that sense that if you want to invest $200 in a mutual fund, you send in the $200, and it'll get invested. With ETFs, they have a share price, and you kind of have to round up or round down. If you have $200, chances are you're not going to be able to invest all of that, because each share has its own price. It's like buying an individual stock. Um, Some brokerages will let you buy partial shares of ETFs, um, but most won't. So that is a benefit to mutual funds. Uh, and then finally, there's just commissions, right? So to buy an ETF from a, a regular brokerage, chances are you'll pay a commission for every purchase. That said, um, more and more ETFs, more and more brokerages are offering commission-free trades on ETFs. So you would also want to look at, okay, what's the, how much am I going to pay for each purchase of the ETF versus the Price of a mutual fund, which for most open end index mutual funds, you're probably not going to pay a commission. So, uh, the bottom line here for Brett is you need to look specifically at the specific fund and the specific ETF and sort of compare all of those costs and everything. To be honest, if it is truly following the exact same index and they have similar expense ratios, it's probably not going to make that big of a difference. When I hear questions like this, it just makes me feel like I'm not worrying enough about how I'm investing my money. Should I? I think you're probably in the better lane than it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like Brett obviously cares a lot about this, but then it makes me like, oh, I've never even considered that I'm being tax efficient in the ETS versus, and then I feel intimidated and horrible about myself. You shouldn't. Nope. Nope. Okay, thanks. Brett, you're better than me. Next question comes from Bill. Based on our Social Security reports, my wife and I can estimate the amount of cash we will be paid each month upon retirement. When evaluating our portfolio allocations, is it better to ignore those future estimated payments, or should we factor them into our allocations? If we consider it as cash in the bank, it would allow us to have more invested in equities today. Yeah, This is a great question, and it brings up a lot of issues. I would say that the first one that I would want to call out is something called sequencing risk. So. Uh, this this is more of a behavioral type of question, but if if you count Social Security income as a portion of your asset allocation, I think it's fair to do so, uh, covering off on the more safe investments like bonds or cash. But what it robs you of is having a placeholder value in your account that doesn't move, right? So you have you've accounted for your stable resource in your asset allocation from an income source that hasn't started to arrive. So you could have all of the rest of your assets be invested in stocks. But now your entire value that's in stocks is going to move wildly with the stock market. And from a behavioral standpoint, that's very difficult to digest because this is just a mental accounting issue. You're not really going to be paying attention to the money that's in Social Security because it's not coming to you yet. And what's important from a sequencing risk perspective is that if all of your money that you need to spend from, in this case your investment assets, are in stocks, and you go to draw on that money for your retirement needs, those stocks could be depressed in value temporarily because stock market. 
And it's very difficult to come back from an early withdrawal at depressed prices early in your retirement. And so having a stable placeholder inside of your account for those occasions is critical to avoiding sequencing risk. Right. And that's where we, we have why we have the income cushion that we talk about in RYR. So you at least have something that is going to hold up no matter what happens to the stock market when you're in retirement. Next question comes from Kurt. We hear so often that investing in large cap funds in the US stock market is like, quote, betting on America. For those of us with federal or military pensions, a large chunk of our future retirement income is already directly tied to the US government's ability to pay in the future, which is arguably dependent on the success of the US stock market. Considering this, should people who will depend on a federal pension invest more in international or other investments, or should we double down on America? I thought this was a really interesting question because I've actually never considered it or seen it discussed before. I mean, the overall principle of factoring your pension into your overall asset allocation definitely makes sense. And it's similar to what we just talked about in Social Security. So, if you were getting your pension, let's say, from a car manufacturer, um, I would definitely say, like, okay, maybe you would want to hold off on buying too many car stocks. The government is a little different. And previously, we would have all said that, you know, a government pension is pretty darn safe and you don't have to worry about things. Well, then, then comes the shutdown. And I read on military.com where 50,000 Coast Guard retirees are at risk of not getting their pension check on February 1st due to the shutdown. Now, I think they'll get their check, and if they don't get it on February 1st, it'll eventually come. But we, I do feel like we're sort of in a new world in terms of where we question things that we kind of always took for granted. So, so as Kurt brings up the question, I'm like, well, maybe you should. So on the, on the one hand, yeah, maybe you should have. You should, I definitely think every retiree should have some international investments, but maybe you should have a little bit more if you're getting your pension from this big company known as United States of America. The flip side of that is that international stocks are more volatile. Volatility can be very worrisome to retirees because retirees don't often have the time to ride out a bear market and they're forced to sell when things are down. Furthermore, international stocks have an additional risk in that they have currency risk. So even though the stocks themselves might be fine, if the dollar moves in a different direction than the currency of those companies, your purchasing power may come down. So that's sort of standard financial planning advice is that you have one reason to reduce your international exposure is to reduce your currency risk because you've got to turn your portfolio into dollars that you spend. So I don't have a really good answer for you. It's an intriguing question that I'll have to ponder some more, but I don't think these days it's a bad idea to consider having a little bit more if so much of your retirement is relying on the government. Bro's going to have to hit the books on that one. I'm going to have to cogitate on that one a little longer. Yeah, and I I just would offer up a few data points on perspective. I mean, outside of this commentary, which I think is valid, uh, international stocks tend to make up more than 50% of global market capitalization. A lot of other robo advisors who have smart people coming up with asset allocation guidance for thousands of clients tend to have their portfolios around 40% in international. When I run into clients at Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company, um, <laughs> the uh, the tendency for foolish <coughs> investors mm-hmm. is that they are severely underweight international stocks. That's partly our fault. We don't have an international service, really, to speak of. Um, but but it's just something to think about. In that most people are underweight international stocks, and to be perfectly candid, 
those people have been rewarded over the last eight to 10 years because international stocks have not done well over the right. last eight to 10 years. And it's a little bit of a confounding factor, but just, just some stuff to think about as you weigh this quandary. All right, next question comes from Eric. Everyone says you aren't supposed to try to time the market because you can't win. But what about changing portfolio allocations in line with the business cycle, especially since there's a degree of certainty in the stage of the business cycle, like the seasons? For example, right now, people are anticipating the end of the current bull market and possibly changing their allocations. Are there good rules of thumb or books you can recommend about timing the business cycle? Yeah, so my answer to this is going to sound snarky, and it partly is. <laughs> but I have folks who call me and always start the conversation with, well, I don't practice market timing, but what if I did this? And it's just a fancy way of rationalizing market timing. And that's what you're doing. At least you called it that at the onset of your question. But what you're trying to do is time the market. And it's a fool's game. You, you can't do it. I could provide you with books to recommend how to time the business cycle. And I could also provide you books that did it based on weather or charts or some other random bullshit that doesn't matter. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Sorry. But, but it just it doesn't work. So what I would suggest as an overarching thesis to think about as a different mechanism is just good old asset allocation. If you're worried that we're at a market top of some kind and you find yourself in, let's say, an 80% equity, 20% bond portfolio, or some variation therein, more weighted towards equity, shift your asset allocation less in equity, more to cash. And, and you can talk with someone, or we can come up with guidelines on what it would be, but that should be your method of market timing. Shift out of equities into a conservative allocation, do so on some time-based regimen, let's say quarterly or every six months, and then when you see the market pullback that you think you know is coming, shift back to where you were. That's the only version of market timing that I suggest to folks because it's the most implementable and regimented that you can follow. The bottom line is, uh, I may have said this before, but I, you know, I've been in this business now for more than 20 years, and I've just never found anyone who's successful at doing this. Um, Eric compares the business cycle to the seasons, yeah. but the, the, the truth is the business cycle is not as predictable, predictable as the seasons. Um, right now, we're in the second longest expansion in history. Um, so, if you just uh, sold your stocks just because we had exceeded the average of five years of an expansion, you would have missed out on the next four years. It's just not that systematic. Yeah, and the old saying is there's more money lost waiting for a pullback than in the pullback itself. And I run into this all the time where people got out in 08. And maybe they were right. Maybe they got out before the crash, but then they stayed in cash for 10 years and they have watched their portfolio flatline. Whereas people who stayed in are way higher than they would have been even accounting for the drawdown. So you just, you have, I just can't preach against market timing enough. It was there that great, was it an article in Market Watch where, um, they looked at the worst market timer in the world, and yes. they 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 did this model portfolio of someone who always sold and bought at the wrong time, but because they stayed in, they still they right. still did very well. Right. They like purchased at the top of the eighty seven yeah. market and the top of the seventy three market, and yet all those, and they still they still came out fine. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from RB. My wife and I had our first child recently. Oh, congrats. 
Congrats. I'm 46 with about 50000 and a rolled over 401k from a previous job I haven't contributed to in years. My wife is 34 and a registered dietitian who just started her first 401k a few years ago. We have about 20000 in the bank, not doing much of anything, and our only debt is a house payment we can easily afford. We have a couple questions. One, my new job offers a 401k option. Should I begin contributing to that, or would it be smarter to open my own foolish account with the portion of our savings? Two, any suggestions for the newborn? So, congratulations again on the new baby. Um, as we discussed earlier, you would definitely consider investing in an IRA first if your 401k stinks and it, you don't have a match. That said, um, from what I can tell here, you're in your mid 40s and you've saved 50,000 for retirement. You're actually a bit behind. Um, so, if you want to be on track to retire at some point in your mid to late 60s, you really should be thinking of maxing out maybe both a 401k and IRA. And I don't know your situation, you might find that difficult to do, but you are behind in terms of your retirement savings. So, you just maxing out an IRA is not going to get you to where you want to be. And again, you can see a fee-only financial planner or even use a retirement calculator to give you an idea of how much you should be saving. So that brings us to the second question, and that is investment suggestions for the newborn. Your priority, in my opinion, is your own retirement at this point. So you should be worried about that, and then maybe think about college for the newborn. In that case, it would be investing in a 529 plan. Um, so those, that's where I would think we think if you still want to learn about investing for kids and maybe teaching kids how to invest, how to invest, I highly recommend the first episode of Rule Breaker Investing. Uh, podcast from this year, in which several fools, myself included, sat around the table with David Gardner and discussed how to do that. But right now, your priority is your retirement. And don't feel guilty about that. Don't feel guilty about no, it at all. at all. Next question comes from John. My wife's pension payments from the state of Texas start next year. The commencement is based upon the rule of 80 age plus years of service, and there's no benefit to delaying. I'm afraid that this will jettison jettison us into a higher tax bracket, causing us to pay more taxes next year. I'm currently maxing out my 401k at 18500 and we are also putting the maximum into her traditional IRA. Are there any other tax-deferred investments available to us other than a health savings account? We currently have good insurance with my employer, and her pension will also provide her with BCBS coverage. Or an educational IRA. Our son enlisted in the Air Force is discharged working for Boeing and will have a GI Bill for school if he wants to go back. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is not really. Uh, I mean, there are, you could save in a quasi tax deferred way with certain life insurance policies or even annuities of some kind. I'm not suggesting that that's a good idea, it's often a bad idea. Um, what I would suggest is definitely take a look specifically at the pension payments because pensions are a whole ball of wax, and oftentimes there are numerous options that you have for pensions. I took a look at the Texas state uh, pension payments. It doesn't seem like it has as many options, but it does seem like it offers a way to take a partial lump sum for certain employees. And the way that you framed it is that that's not an option to you. So you want to be careful because if you could take a partial lump sum, you could roll that into an IRA. It would reduce your monthly pension income by a corresponding amount. And therefore, you could manage your tax bracket better. Uh, but I would, I think this is more trying to get broad advice to people that if you have a pension, Again, you should consult a financial advisor because they can help you figure out what the best mix of income recognition is for you, whether it's a lump sum rollover, partial lump sum rollover, straight life annuity, 50% joint life annuity. 
uh, an annuity in this case is referring to the pension payment, not an, an annuity product. Um, but those are critical things that you need to be thinking about. Um, and I would say you're in good shape. You know, if you have to pay more in taxes because you have so much money in retirement, you don't know what to do with. You count your blessings. <laughs> there right? worst problems. <laughs> good thing. Worst problems. Yeah. I'll just point out a couple of things that it was John mentioned in his question. He mentioned that he's maxing out his 401k at 18,500. This question came in at the end of last year. Just so everyone knows, the the max has gone up to 19,000. Um, for those under 50, it's 25000 for 50 and older, just so everyone's aware of that. And he also mentions the option of the education IRA. That's now called the Coverdell. Um, and he, he suggested he would do it for his son. One thing about the Coverdell is once you put the money in, the money has to come out by age 30, uh, as opposed to a 529. So that's one reason why we like 529s. But if he were considering that as a some form of tax deferral, or it, it, actually it's tax-free if you use it for qualified expenses, he won't be able to leave it in there long because the money will have to come out by age 30. All right, next question comes from Mark. Mark writes, two IRA questions that I need clarity on. One, I am allowed to have both a Roth and a traditional IRA, correct? And I can only contribute a max of $6,000, i am 37 between both accounts, not into each one? Do you want to take him? Sure. Get and that's an easy one. And yes, you got it. You understand it. The max is for you as someone who's under 50. $6,000. You could split it up among 20 IRAs if you want, but the total has to be 6000 And it's the same with 401ks, too. You could contribute to a Roth and a traditional as long as the total does not uh, exceed the max of 19000 The only exception for some people is if they have a 457 as well, and they can do max out both of those in some cases. And the second question, if a traditional IRA is funded with pre-tax dollars, how do I fund it? Once I receive my bi-monthly salary, taxes have already been taken out. Is this remedied by tax deductions during filing? And the answer to that is also yes. You just get the deduction on it. But it's important to know that the contribution may not be deductible if you are covered by an employer-sponsored plan, like a 401k, and you make above a certain amount. For 2019, those amounts of your single it starts phasing out if you have an adjusted gross income above 64000 If you're married and you have a plan uh, that start your eligibility to, to deduct those contributions starts to phase out at a gross income, uh, adjusted gross income of 103000 And if you're married, you don't have, you're not covered by your plan, but your spouse is, then it starts to fade out above 193000 So, just because you're, you contribute to a traditional IRA doesn't necessarily mean it will be deductible. And our last question comes from Adarsha. I'm a software engineer in California. I am paid well, 200000 plus. Save the maximum in my 401k and max out my ESPP. I'm from India and currently on the H-1B visa program. Due to visa issues for Indians, my wait for a green card is 6 to 10 years. This is frustrating, but life must go on. I would ideally like to buy a home in the next three to four years. Houses in the Bay Area where I live cost above $1 million and down payments run in the range of $200K+. I already have $40,000 saved toward this purpose. My question, what should be my strategy for saving for the down payment given the time horizon? Currently, I have this money in CDs, which are locked in for three months, and I renew them every three months and then reinvest the interest. There is some uncertainty that after three to four years, I might not buy a home due to the risk related to the visa. Can you give me some advice on what could be done to this down payment money in that scenario? Yeah, and I'll just say first, I sympathize with you. My wife is on H-1B and also could have to wait a long time, so I'm sorry to hear about that. Even though she married you? That doesn't like speed up the process? I thought thought that was the reason she did it. 
Right. That's the I only mean, reason she did. Yeah. If you want to get married, I also I offer visas for just show me your statements. Um, <laughs> yeah. Technically, just. Uh, so she would get green card through me uh, through the marriage. Uh, unfortunately, that process takes between uh, twelve and thirty six months. Oh. So it shortens it, but it's still a long time potentially. Oh. Yeah. Um, but so, so to your question, you know, it, it's a t- it's a tough question. I think we probably want to take a step back in terms of how we're evaluating this. I understand the desire to buy a home, but because of the precariousness of your situation and that you could have to go back to India, and you're in San Francisco, where home prices are ridiculous, I think we would want to just have a bigger conversation around whether it's worth buying a home in San Francisco, rather than trying to figure out, okay, if I want to buy a home, how should I do it? I don't mean to dismiss your question, but I think that's a more important question. To the specifics of your actual question, I think at best, what I would suggest outside of cash, because we have this rule where if you need the cash within three to four years, three to five years, whatever the, the time frame is, it should stay in cash. There should be not much risk to it. The only thing that I would offer more risk-seeking folks is that you could create a taxable brokerage account, invest it in some diversified asset-allocated portfolio, say 50-50, 50% equity, 50% bonds. And you could consider applying margin to that account to help with the down payment. That, Like I said, this is for risk-seeking individuals because you're breaking the three- to four-year guideline and you're going on margin on an account that fluctuates in value. But it helps in certain situations depending on how you structure it. Seek financial advice if you want to implement this. Yeah, I would say just we we've talked before on this show about sometimes the benefits of home ownership are, are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> wait, wait, do yes. we all want to take turns telling our own stories? <laughs> we'll save we that for all, the home buying episode we'll we have coming up. Home buying episode, yeah. Uh, but especially when you have to pay a million dollars for the house, Ugh. you add that to the uncertainty of his um, visa status and and the whole discussion about immigration in this country in general. And I'm like, I would I would not be rushing to buy a house. Although certainly it makes sense to start saving up for it now because you want to be able to be ready if and when your citizenship status is has been decided. So, but that said, I would like I would not rush to buy one right now. And there are cool things like I'm always interested in learning new ways to address common themes that I pull out of questions. And this is I think what this the underlying question here is. I'm paying rent, right? So you're you're you would want to buy a house because you're paying rent, and in San Francisco, rent is ridiculous, and it basically feels like you're burning up money. There are startups that are starting to come to the surface where they're actually collecting rent. So you kind of sign up for a contract, and they're giving you the potential for future ownership in a particular building. Uh, like you could be buying a condo by virtue of the rent that you pay them. And so just keep your eyes out for interesting products like that as you think through your situation as an alternative to just feeling like you have to buy a home. All right, well, guys, that was it. Those were the questions. But I have postcards to talk about because some postcards came in. Well, let's do some postcards. Let's do some postcards. So Josh sent postcards from Japan and a cool little wine bar in Culver City called Hayden. Nice. Um, I sent Josh a link to my Learn Japanese audio uh, <laughs> files. And so there's there's proof that he actually went to Japan and used them. Whoa, look at that. Uh, Yoshi sent a card from New Zealand, from Wellington. Yoshi is there um, working uh, on a holiday visa trip, working, everything. 
So that looks fun. We also have a card from Lee from New Zealand where the show distracts him or her uh, from the ugly scenery. So look at that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's it's so ugly. ugly. It's Ugh. pretty rough. Doubtful yeah, it's, sound. It's not, it's not ugly. It's not. It's, it's, it's quite, quite gorgeous. Our favorite swimmer, Jim, is living the dream by uh, living a month in Thailand. Wow. Yeah, also a real ugly, ugly yeah. spot there, yeah, as you can see. Nice. Suffering it. Monica has Perfect handwriting. She sent a card from um, Melbourne. She wanted to share with us her favorite Aussie lingo that she learned. Oh, yeah? Spit the dummy. What? What does that mean? So, spit the a dummy is a pacifier. Take it back. And so, if you spit the dummy, it means you're throwing a a temper tantrum and acting like a child. I've got to remember that one. Isn't that a good one? I love that. Uh, And then we also have a card um, sent from... Los Angeles, but purchased in Cabo by Kenneth. So thanks everyone for keeping the cards coming in, even though it's the dead of winter. It's maybe the most depressing, ugliest day outside uh, in Alexandria right now. So it's nice to look at all these postcards and see that it's beautiful somewhere. Yes. But not here. We're with you in spirit. (laughs) That's right. All right, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show and helping us answer these questions. And like I said, we'll see you in a few weeks, a couple weeks, to talk about what you need to know when with your finances when you get married. That sounds great. Awesome. All right. The show is edited scenically by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.